0: My name is Keith Beavers, and I just found out that it takes a drop of water 90 days to travel the entire Mississippi River. Like, how, how did that, who figured that out? What's going on, wine lovers from the Vine Pair Podcasting Network? This is the Wine 101 Podcast. My name is Keith Beavers. I am the tastings director of Vine Pair. That's right. And how you doing? Okay, so last week we did the left bank. Today we're diving deep into the right bank. It's really, it's such a generalization. Let's get into this and why the right bank is so different. This episode's sponsor of Wine 101 is Talbot Vineyards, home of the legendary Sleepy Hollow Vineyard. Sounds mysterious, right? Sleepy Hollow is famous for producing acclaimed Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Okay, and this is where things get really wild. Every day, the vineyard gets shrouded in cooling fog from the Pacific Ocean. It's all good, though. The grapes ripen more slowly and end up packed with concentrated flavor and color. To try Talbot Vineyards wine, follow the link in the episode description to bellroom.com. Oh, the right bank. This one is going to be so much fun. Oh, and by the way, as with last episode, if you want a nice breakdown of the entire Bordeaux region to get a sense of what's going on here in this episode, go ahead to season one to the Bordeaux episode where I break it all down about 20 minutes. You know, here on the, on the United States, you know... We, We talk about left and right bank a lot, right? Even if you don't know much about Bordeaux, you heard about the left and the right bank. And sometimes I find it just a little bit misleading. Not really, but kind of in that they're not right across from each other, right? The wines of the left bank are just in from the estuary of the Atlantic Ocean. And then, as we talk about in the original Bordeaux episode, that is the Gironde estuary, which splits off into two rivers, the Dordogne and the Garonne the Dordogne being the northernmost tributary or river that breaks off from the estuary. But this is where it gets a little bit confusing because just across the the estuary from the Maidoc is the right bank. Left bank, right bank. It makes sense. But right across from Maidoc is a place called Borg and a place called Blay. Those appellations, which you can listen to in the... Bordeaux episode in season one is not really what people are talking about when they talk about the right bank. What they're talking about is much further down the river. As the Dordogne starts to really snake around the landmass, it passes by a town called Libourne, L-I-B-O-U-R-N-E. And this right here and inland is what people consider the right bank. Now, the right bank is all of it, all the way from Blay, Borg, all the way down. But when we talk about the right bank, it's this concentrated area of fine wine that we're talking about. And as we go inland from the town of Liborne, we start to enter a rise in the earth. (laughs) Basically what's happening is we, there's a plateau just surrounding Liborne. And on this plateau is a famous little medieval town called Saint-Emilion. I mean, it looks like your typical, beautiful, quaint medieval town. And it has a spired church. And literally surrounding the border of this ancient medieval town are vineyards. It is an absolutely stunning place. So stunning that in 1999, it became a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's actually so impressive that the tourism is, is so insane here that the downtown area no longer really has inhabitants so much as it has businesses and boutiques, which is fine because it's an absolutely beautiful little town. And this plateau sits on a bunch of limestone. You know, with these Bordeaux episodes, I'm really getting into a lot of soil stuff here, which I usually don't get into on this podcast. But uh, I'm going to tell you right here and now, we have a soil episode coming up. And that'll put a lot of this into context. So once that episode comes out, come maybe come back and listen to this episode and the other Bordeaux episode to kind of get a sense of all this stuff. And Saint-Emilion is its own AOC and there are other AOCs and sub appellations surrounding it. Again, the Bordeaux episode will break all that down. But the thing, the reason why people say left and right bank, they want to distinguish this stuff is because of the soil. And the presence of limestone is great anywhere, but there's also sand and clay. And because of this element of soil, clay, Merlot loves clay. And because of the amount of clay in this area, Merlot tends to be the dominant variety. And then Cab Franc. So a lot of the wines that come from the right bank our Merlot base with Cab Franc and then some other stuff, <laughs> other stuff, other blending varieties like uh, Malbec. Sometimes Malbec is around. It was, it was brought to this area. They think by a winemaker from the Kaor region. I have a Malbec episode. I think it's in season two. Go ahead and listen to that. But Merlot is dominant here because of the soil composition. But also in 1956, there was this huge damaging frost. In Bordeaux, And after that, a lot of vines died. So there's a lot of replanting going on. And Cab Franc is absolutely going to hang out in the little gravel areas of this part of of, of Bordeaux. Because there is gravel here. Because if it's on one side of the river, it's on the other side of the river, of course. But it, it it was thought that Merlot was better in the more sandier soils also that go down towards the Dordogne off the plateau. So Merlot kind of just like, you know, I got, I, I got this, guys. But... We talk about Bordeaux, and then we also you immediately go to the May Dock situation because of the 1855 classification. The, 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 the right bank is not like the left bank in that the, the left bank is, you know, we talked about all the power there. You had the owners, the brokers, the merchants, and all of that. Here, the right bank, Saint-Emilion, its satellite regions and beyond – is more... Do I want to say bucolic? Maybe the word is... I mean, not bucolic, but they're more scattered. There's more room. They're not as packed. There's a lot of talk about when you're researching this area that it wasn't until the 18th century that this area really kind of came into prominence. But that ignores a ton of history. It's said to have been founded by a man named Decimus Magnus Asonius. He was a poet and an administrator. I'm not really sure what that means, but he was born in this area in Bordeaux, and he retired in this area of Bordeaux. And actually, one of the most famous chateaux in Saint Emilion, Chateau Ausson is a nod to him. And it's said that he named the town after it was. It was a religious thing. It was a, a saint, Emilianus, uh, Am- which kind of eventually became Emilion. Again, by the way. I'm really bad at pronouncing French. I'm sorry. But before that, the ancient Roman footprint is really kind of big here. There is a Roman tradition here that lasted for quite some time. I don't think it happens anymore, but there are these ancient uh, ditches or trenches that are dug into the limestone around this area. And then they were filled with earth and planted with fruit trees to help support vines and to this day you can still see some of some of these but the thing is they're not ancient rome age they're a little bit newer because i think through the 1930s they were still using this stuff in places of saint emilion but the the big roman influence here is in pomerol pomerol by the by the way the name pomerol is is kind of shrouded in mystery but they believe that pomerol or pom, which means apple in French, was also an old word meaning something bearing seed. And because of the land of pomerol, the sprawling sort of like farmland of pomerol, it's thought that it was a polycultural agricultural society. But what's even more important than that is pomerol was a crossroads. It had these two very important Roman roads that were a staging area for a pilgrimage to a place in northwestern Spain, specifically in Galicia in a town called Santiago de Compostela. And there there's this massive church that was destroyed at one point, was built back after Muslim rule. And it was sort of a Christian pilgrimage to kind of defend Christianity against the Muslim world, whatever. But this staging ground was also a place where a very famous order of knights called the Knights of Malta, which they exist today, actually. They're a humanitarian um, organization. But back in the day, they were these knights that actually built a hospital in Jerusalem that accepted all religions and all this stuff. So they built up that way. So that obviously we're going to be in Pomerol. And these knights, this is all about in the 13th century. And by the 15th century, the pilgrimage thing kind of died down and the knights stayed there and became farmers and vineyard owners and kind of built it up from there. So you kind of see how this stuff is starting to build and evolve. But because Romans were there, vines were there, wine was there. So by the, the end of the 13th century, the town of Saint-Emilion becomes an independent charter and this is when they start developing organizations surrounding wine. Specifically, I don't know how to pronounce this really well. I think it's called the Girard. And this is where we start seeing, you know, the whole wine thing start becoming very, very important because the Girard was a winemaking guild. And they were, they were established to do two things. Announce the date of the harvest, because it often changed, you know, from, from vintage to vintage, year to year. And they were also the body that maintained quality of wine in the, in the region. And they are pretty intense. They could actually destroy your wine. If they, they thought that it was not worthy of the region. And this actually happens to this day around harvest. I had actually a chance to, to witness this. It's a very formal ceremony with robes and trumpets. And there's a, there is a, someone who goes up into the bell tower and announces the date of the harvest or announces the harvest and then everyone just kind of parties, and then there's fireworks, and it's absolutely a wonderful time. The Girard is no longer such an integral part of the winemaking issue situation. They're more of a, I don't know, they're a promotional body now. So you see the history here is just a little bit different, um, even though it's very close to to the Maydoc. But what's really cool is Saint-Emilion was one of the first regions in France, or I think the first region in France to set up a, a a wine syndicate or an organization of individuals coming together for a combined interest, which was in the late 19th century, because after the 18th century, the thing about Saint-Emilion and its surrounding regions is it benefited not necessarily from the port town of Liborne, which it did, but it also benefited from Northern France and selling wines, that way. So it had been making wine and establishing a reputation for quite some time. So by the time 1884 comes around and the syndicate is 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 created, it's because of the popularity of this area within the area that it's in or I should say within its nearest trading routes. By 1931, the Right Bank has its own, well, Saint-Émilion in the surrounding area gets its own co-op which really helps a lot of the smaller wine producers in the area. And then in 1936, the big deal happens where it becomes Saint-Émilion becomes its own AOC. And then everything else follows suit from there, the satellite regions, Blay, Borg, and everything else. And 100 years after the 1855 classification of the Médoc in 1955, the the right bank finally gets its own classification system, and man, is it well, oh, it's fine. It's just a little bit more. It's different. It's more restrictive than the Médoc. It's but it's it's really a fascinating classification system. I go over the details it in the Bordeaux episodes in season one. But something about this that's different than the classification of the Maydoc is that even though the Médoc in theory can be changed, but it never will. The classification for Saint-Emilion is assessed every 10 years. And that, prov- <laughs> that creates a lot of drama. And what's really wild about this, is it's, even, it's even crazier, is that in the Médoc, if you have a chateau with some vineyards and you buy a new parcel, you can integrate that parcel into your production, no problem. If you are in Saint-Emilion, and you buy new parcels. You have to vinify that parcel alone for 10 years to prove that it's worthy to be incorporated into the production of your wine. That's a little bit intense. But what's really, I don't know, what's really great about this, I mean, it, it, it causes a lot, of, it's, it's a lot of competition, a lot of drama, a lot of lawsuits. It's, it's kind of nuts because in Santa emilion you can always be demoted or promoted. And people that are demoted get mad, and they try to sue, and then the promoted are like, well, that's okay, I got promoted, and they get demoted. It's it's kind of kind of wild. So you have this sort of bucolic area with almost like more scattered vineyards, and you, Saint-Emilion, which is a the appellation that comes from Liborne, you know, outside of Liborne onto the plateau. And then if you go just north of that, that area of Saint-Emilion, there is a river called the Barban. I'm probably pronouncing that terribly, B-R-B. B-A-R-B-A-N-N-E. And then north of that, you have these satellite regions, which I talk talk about in the Bordeaux episode, that came around much, much later. And then that's all in that classification system. And then you have Pomerol and Le de Pomerol, which is just uh, a little bit northeast. There's no classification system at all. It's completely disconnected from the Centimillion situation. It's part of the right bank, and it's Merlot dominant. It's just more of that. I mean, we're talking like farmland, gently rolling hills, absolutely beautiful. The thing is, Pomerol doesn't – there's actually no town in Pomerol, whereas Saint-Emilion, you have the town and the surrounding area. Pomerol doesn't really have a town. There's a church there, but no real town, which is kind of – I don't know. It's kind of of awesome. And a lot of these winemakers are a lot smaller, like the chateaus – Yes, in Saint-Emilion, you're going to see these big chateaus. There's a few, you know, there's there's a classification system. In Pomerol, Petrus is there, but it's not a big chateau area. And there are some very small winemakers there. When I was in Pomerol, I visited a winemaker who was still labeling her own wines with glue and corking them with a very old sort of like nine... 18th century 19th century uh, cork machine. And we actually got to help her out, which is really great. But you're you're sitting in these little homes, and she was literally in her garage. And this is a this is an area where the garagiste became very popular in the early aughts, in the late 90s, early aughts, where these winemakers were going against classification, and they were going against style. They were making their own style. It's no longer a thing that much anymore, although there are still quote-unquote garagiste winemakers out there, and you can ask your wine merchants about them. But the interesting thing about Pomerol is that it's sprawling, and there's a bunch of vineyards and small wineries that do command high prices and are absolutely phenomenal, which we'll talk about in a second, but there's no co-op here. So it literally is a bunch of small winemakers trying to make something different than everybody else, and it works. There is a... The, the Pomerol area only became popular with us because of Robert Parker in the 1980s, but there was a... A man whose name I will butcher, named Jean Pierre Moueix. I'm not really sure. M O U E I X. In 1937, he was a negociant. He created this. He created a negociant company in Pomerol in 1937, and this really brought Pomerol to the fore. And this is where the right bank becomes Saint Emilion in Pomerol. And everything else around it is great, but these are the places that people start to seek out, especially Saint-Emilion and now Pomerol. And as far as wine is concerned, it's a little bit tough because this area was not human-made. This is um, a somewhat of a chaotic mix of three or four different kinds of soils with that vary depending on where you are in the right, ba- of this area, Saint-Emilion, Pomerol, and its surrounding areas. Now, the thing is, like I said earlier, it is primarily Merlot, from Blay, Borg, down to Pomerol, its larger sister appellation, the land de Pomerol, into Saint-Emilion in the south. It, Merlot dominates. And depending on where the Merlot was grown, depends on whether, how much Cab Franc is grown because Cab Franc likes more gravelly soils. Merlot can handle clay and sand. So depending on where you're at. So it's very interesting. Um, I was reading about the satellite regions of, um, of Saint-Emilion, and there was a winemaker in the area that said for him, it's very hard to distinguish the subtleties between the different satellite regions. And that's the thing about our market. When we're talking about the Right Bank, Saint Emilion, the satellite regions, Pomerol, and beyond. This is a this is a very fun region to really, really explore and just find the ones that you love the most. Because the thing about this area is the wines do not command the same prices as the Medoc. Yes, there are wines like Chateau Hauts, uh, Cheval Blanc, uh, and Petrus. They they do command high prices. But the average price of a very good Saint-Emilion is gonna be like forty bucks. So it's a really great region of Bordeaux. If you like the soft suppleness of Merlot with the sort of like racy acidity and peppery notes of Cab Franc, you're gonna be in heaven because the wines out of Saint-Emilion are absolutely beautiful. They're elegant, they're supple, they're powerful. They're somewhat age-worthy, but depending on where you're getting your Cintimillon, your wine from, it can be different from Chateau to Chateau and from winemaker to winemaker. I was in Pomerol and I had a wine that was very earthy, very earthy. And then I went to another winemaker just down the road and it was supple and and, and, and elegant. And that's the beauty of Cintimillon and the right bank is you have that opportunity financially to really play around and have fun with it. Okay, so I hope this gave you a little bit of context to the Bordeaux episode. Um, I, lo- I just I love saint wine. I love wines from the right bank. So I hope I, that came through. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love a saint Estèphe. I love a Saint-Julien. Actually, interestingly enough, Pomerol and Saint-Julien are the same size. That's crazy. Okay, we'll talk next week. We're going to the road. Vine Pair Keith is my Insta. Rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps get the word out there. And now for some totally awesome credits. Wine 101 was produced, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Keith Beavers, at the Vine Pair headquarters in New York City. I want to give a big old shout-out to co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon for... Creating Vine Pair. And I mean, big shout out to Danielle Grinberg, the art director of Vine Pair, for creating the most awesome logo for this podcast. Also, Darby Seaside for the theme song. Listen to this. And I want to thank the entire Vine Pair staff for helping me learn something new every day. See you next week. J Gallo Winery is excited to sponsor this episode of Vine Pairs Wine 101. Gallo always welcomes new friends to wine with an amazing wide spectrum of favorites ranging from everyday to luxury and sparkling wine. Gallo also makes award-winning spirits, but this is a wine podcast. Whether you are new to wine or an aficionado, Gallo welcomes you to wine. Visit thebarrelroom.com today to find your next favorite, where shipping is available.